Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Proverbs chapter 31. Here we enter into what scholars often designate Collection 7, the sayings of Lemuel. The big debate here has to do with whether the sayings of Lemuel are to be understood as contained in verses 1 to 9 only or in verses 1 to 31 comprehensively. This one seems like an even split among the commentaries that I consulted. On balance, I think I agree with Walke in understanding all of chapter 31 as the sayings of Lemuel. He says here, if Lemuel is not the author of The Valiant Wife, it is a unique orphan in Proverbs. That is, it lacks a superscription ascribing its authorship. Closed quote. That's a fair point. Proverbs in general makes no effort whatsoever to hide its sources. It tells you these are the Proverbs of Solomon or these are the Proverbs of Solomon which the men of Hezekiah copied. Even non-Solomonic sources are noted, as in the last chapter, the words of Agur, son of Jacob. So it would be odd if here a chunk of content was inserted without a superscription of any kind, which leads to the very reasonable conclusion that all of this content in this chapter is to be considered as belonging beneath the single superscription we have in verse 1. That is to say that everything we read in chapter 31 should be understood as the words of King Lemuel, both the oracle taught to him by his mother in verses 2 to 9, and then the acrostic poem about the valiant woman in verses 10 to 31. Now, as to the identity of this King Lemuel, there are two main opinions on that matter. Many readers and commentators over the years have understood this as a sort of nom de plume for Solomon. The name itself means something like belonging to God. Jewish tradition goes that route, understanding Solomon as the author and the oracle his mother taught him as actually coming from Bathsheba when Solomon was being led astray by his Egyptian wife. The second opinion would be that Lemuel was a non-Jewish king who converted to the worship of Yahweh, perhaps through friendship and interaction with Solomon. And it's difficult to say for sure. The fact that it is included here in Proverbs, in the canon of Scripture, indicates that it was understood as ultimately inspired by God, irrespective of the immediate human author. And we'll read it together on that basis. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing? Son of my womb, what are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink, and forget their poverty, and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, 
for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So in this poem, the queen mother is warning her royal son not to indulge in sensuality, but rather to give himself wholly to wise and righteous leadership. Of course, it would be a great temptation for a king to use his wealth and power to indulge the lusts of the flesh. He could accumulate many concubines. He could spend all day drinking beer and fine wine. But the job of a king is to protect the vulnerable and to give wise judgments. And in order to do that, obviously, he's going to need to keep his wits about him. Understanding the overall message of this short oracle should help us avoid the dangers of over-application. The mother here is obviously not forbidding all sex, and neither is she forbidding all alcohol. She is commending moderation, prudence, focus, and self-control. Tremper Longman III says helpfully here, The Bible as a whole is not at all opposed to alcohol and even praises what might be understood as slight intoxication. But heavy drinking is frowned upon. It is very important for a king to know what he is doing as he makes decisions, because his decisions have important ramifications for many people, closed quote. Now, some readers feel uncomfortable with what the Queen Mother says in verses 6 to 7, as it sounds at first reading, as though she's saying that the poor should be encouraged to drown their sorrows in alcohol. But again, this is a piece of rhetoric, and most scholars will take note of that. In all likelihood, she intends to be read sarcastically here. She's saying, don't act like a derelict who uses alcohol to numb himself against all his troubles. You're the king for crying out loud. Now act like it. Again, moderation, discipline, and focus are what she's calling for here. Bruce Walkie makes a similar comment regarding what she says about women. He says, she cautions Lemuel against unrestrained sexual gratification, but she is not advocating celibacy, closed quote. A king cannot unman himself with gross overindulgence. That's the idea here. His job is to judge righteously and to defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And for that, he needs his wits about him. Following the oracle, we have an acrostic poem now about the valiant woman. We can wonder whether the oracle from the queen mother inspired Lemuel, whether he was a converted king or whether Solomon himself, to think about the qualities of an ideal woman. We can wonder about that, but we probably can't say anything too definite. What we can say is that the poem was probably meant as a guide for young men in thinking about their future partners and also for young women in terms of presenting an ideal or aspirational target. It forms a fitting conclusion to the book as a whole because it brings everything that has been said about wisdom down to street level, as it were. David Atkinson says helpfully here, most likely what we have in this beautiful poem is not only the idealized picture of the wife whose noble character fills out the blessed life to which the fear of the Lord leads. What we also have is a demonstration of what the life of wisdom herself would look like were she to manage the home. Wisdom is no esoteric concept which floats in some mystical realm out of touch with the ordinary world. The wisdom of God is here expressed in the creativity, responsibility, and artistry of managing a home. 
providing for the needs of others, and taking a stand on the side of the poor, closed quote. So what we have here really is a picture of wisdom at home. I'll start reading at verse 10. An excellent wife, who can find? She is more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. As I mentioned, this entire presentation comes to us in the form of an acrostic poem, meaning that the initial consonant of each verse follows the order of the Hebrew alphabet. That won't show up in English, obviously, but it's important for us to know that that was there in the original Hebrew. Now, of course, this would have been an aid in memorization and also serves to frame the content as a sort of A to Z of domestic wisdom. The depiction begins by asserting that the excellent wife is a blessing to everyone. Wisdom is not just wisdom for self's sake. It is wisdom for society's sake. This woman is a gift to her family and to the community at large. Verse 13. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. The idea here, obviously, is that she's very hardworking. Laziness is never celebrated in the Bible, and certainly not in the book of Proverbs. We've been reminded many times that the hand of the diligent maketh rich, as the old King James used to say. And here we are seeing that principle applied in the home. A wise person is a hard-working person in the field, in the marketplace, and in the home. Verse 16. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. Most commentators note that the activities here indicate that the woman being depicted represents what we might call an upper-middle-class person. She's not a royal wife, clearly, but neither is she poor. She is a shrewd businesswoman. She manages the household assets. She makes wise investments and adds to the value of those investments with old-fashioned sweat equity. And she has some kind of side hustle. She, she makes a quality product and she earns extra income for her family. That line there in verse 18 about her lamp never going out is probably intended to indicate prosperity as opposed to incessant activity. In those days, lamp oil was expensive, but having a light on in the house at night was considered desirable. So in a prosperous home, the lamp would burn through the night. Whereas in a home on a tight budget, the lamp would be blown out when the family went to sleep. So the idea here is that her family budget is very healthy because she is so hardworking and wise. Verse 20, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. Let's pause here and notice that as always in the Bible, an aspect of wisdom and nobility is caring for the poor and the needy. Lemuel's mother, of course, was trying very hard to impress that fact upon her son in the opening oracle. And the book of Proverbs itself has been pressing that point on all the young leaders who are intended to read it on multiple occasions. That 
point is also made in Psalm 112, which is basically the male counterpart of Proverbs 31. Psalm 112 describes a virtuous and commendable man, and it has many points of similarity with what we're seeing here. So Psalm 112 verses 5 to 9 says, It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Close quote. So the ideal man is also generous toward the poor, and he is also confident and well-prepared for the future, which is the very next thing said here in Proverbs 31. Look at verse 21. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. Snow is a possibility in Israel in the months between November and February, but this woman isn't concerned about that because she has prepared proper clothing and coverings for all well in advance. Anticipation and preparation are important aspects of wisdom in the marketplace and also in the home. Verse 22, she makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Now let's just pause for a moment and note the similarities between the description of her clothing here and the description of the rich man's clothing in Luke 16, verse 19, which says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Close quote. All right, so in both passages, we have rich, prosperous, well-dressed, and well-fed people. But the picture Jesus is painting in Luke 16 is very different than the picture being painted here. And that reminds us again of the very nuanced perspective on wealth that we find in the Bible. Alan P. Ross is helpful here. He says, commenting on these similarities, The problem was not with the clothing he wore, but his lack of charity. Closed quote. That's important for us to see. The Bible does not say that it is wrong to be rich or well-fed or well-clothed. You are image and likeness of God, for crying out loud. You were never meant to live in squalid poverty. God made a good world, and it is no sin to have and to enjoy the bounty of it. The sin is in not sharing that with other people. That perspective permeates both the Old and New Testaments. The Apostle Paul addresses this issue in 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, saying, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life, closed quote. So if you trust in your wealth, that's a problem. If you derive your identity from your wealth, that's a problem. If you fail to share your wealth generously with others who have less than you, that's a problem. But having wealth, being well off, having nice clothes, eating good food, that's not the issue. Old Testament or new. 
The virtuous woman in this chapter is eating well, and her family's eating well, and they're all wearing nice clothes because she is hardworking, industrious, and wise. And this aligns very well with the general worldview expressed in Proverbs. The world has been wired by God to respond to wisdom and human industry. So when you do the right things, generally speaking, you receive predictable rewards. And that's a good thing. Verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. The idea here is that because the wise woman is doing such an incredible job of managing the household, her husband is freed up to play an important role in the wider community. The elders at the gate in the Old Testament times were the ruling council of the city. They would make decisions on land disputes. They would provide wisdom and guidance. And her husband is a respected figure in that circle. Now, we used to say, behind every good man is a good woman. You can get yourself into trouble saying things like that today, but that's basically the principle that is being reflected here in verse 23. Lemuel is saying that for a man to take a leadership role in society— he needs to have a woman like this as a partner. If his house was on fire, of course, he wouldn't be providing leadership at the gate of the city. He'd be at home with a bucket. But because he is married to this dynamo, he has time and talent to spend on the wider group. This sort of perspective reflects a broadly complementarian view of gender relations, the idea that it takes two people to live one good life. The home and the public square are both critically important. But passages like this one recognize that it is difficult to play a leading role in both spheres simultaneously. And so what we're seeing here is a couple that has learned to divide and conquer. If both spheres are valued equally and if both spheres are celebrated equally, then there's no reason at all to demean this approach to life as outdated or misogynistic. Verse 24. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. That she laughs at the time to come simply means that she faces the ups and downs of life with confidence and assurance because she is wise, industrious, and prepared. We saw exactly the same thing in the male counterpart to this chapter in Psalm 112. The idea in both places is that if you're fearing God, if you're doing what you should, and if you're respecting the boundaries of the created order, then you're going to feel steady and resolved and optimistic and well you should. That's the basic idea here. Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So this woman is not simply a worker bee or a molly maid. This woman is a teacher and a sage in her own right. She's a mentor and a leader and a role model to many. Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. The emphasis here is on alertness. That comes out a little bit better in the NIV, which renders verse 27 this way. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. So she's not asleep at the switch. She's like a watchman keeping careful guard over her domain. Her commitment, her vigilance, and her diligence do not go unnoticed. Verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed. 
her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. We assume that verse 29 records the praise of the husband. Her children rise up and bless her, and then the husband also sings her praises. Verses 30 to 31 then likely represent Lemuel's closing comment. He has painted the picture, and now he steps back and offers his own appraisal. He says, Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. The tone of these closing verses supports the suggestion that at least part of the purpose behind the original creation of this poem was to provide direction to young men in their choice of a bride. The wise man is saying, Don't just consider matters of appearance. Such things may in fact blind you to more important and enduring realities. Character matters. Wisdom matters. Faith matters. Think about more than your wedding night. Think about the life, the children, the home, and the impact you would like to have as a family. That's good advice. There is nothing wrong with physical beauty, but it pales in comparison to these other things. A woman who fears the Lord and who out of that relationship is humble and charitable and diligent and confident and wise, a woman like that is a gift. And if you find a woman like that, you should cherish her, reward her, protect her, and praise her your whole life long. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.